Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Cutie and the Boxer, a documentary about famed boxing painter Ushio Shinohara and his wife-slash-assistant Noriko, premieres on demand this week. And on December 24th, watch the story of a man with memory loss, a group of strangers, and a pit of dead bodies in Open Grave, available on demand before it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this week's show, spring break lasts forever, or at least the next 75 minutes or so. Our listener's choice review is Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Spring Breakers, Allison was pushing really hard this week for an entire episode about star Vanessa Hudgens. As the founder, president, secretary, and treasurer of the Brooklyn chapter of the official Vanessa Hudgens fan club, which, of course, is named, everyone knows, the Hudgies. Allison, you were really hoping to put your seven years of hardcore V-Hudge fandom to good use. And you were also hoping I would let you sing the entire soundtrack to High School Musical. But I, in the interest of fairness, demanded equal time for a Zac Efron podcast where I, as the founder, president, secretary, treasurer, and man-at-arms of the Brooklyn chapter of the official Zac Efron fan club, which, of course, is named – that's right – Efrontery, could extol the virtues of my beloved Zephy. Well, it all – you just backed off because you didn't want to do it. You said that was too much. You couldn't have both. It, it would have been unfair. Yeah. Unfair to the Hudgies. That's right. And, you know, I couldn't do that to Zephy and my fellow members of Effrontery. So instead, we compromised on a podcast focused on the life and career of a different Spring Breaker star, Mr. James Franco. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand. Allison, what's our first pick this week? Well, the first film I'm going to highlight is a film. It's one of those rare cases where I actually like the remake of a film better than its original. And that film is We Are What We Are, 
which is available on demand on December 17th, so likely by the time you hear this. It's a remake of a 2010 Mexican horror film of the same name by Jorge Michel Grau. And uh, the original film is definitely a beautiful kind of haunting, but also it felt to me slightly underdeveloped film about a family of cannibals who are living in Mexico City. Uh, The film is kind of filled with this clock imagery and this idea of urban decay and chaos. The American version uh, moves this to a rural setting where the ritualized cannibalism fits into this kind of uh, like fundamentalism of the region. And it, uh, it definitely fills out its own mythology a little more, which I think in this case is to the film's benefit. It's directed by Jim Mickle, who did Stakelands, and it just manages to be a great slow burn in which you start to understand why this small family is so unusual, especially after the death of its matriarch, and kind of gets more and more of a sense of urgency as as we approach the uh, the ritual in question. Daddy, Mama's gone. Better place he calls us. Amen. We will carry on. We've kept our tradition in its purity. We do it the way that we've always done it. Iris is the eldest. It's her responsibility now. You ready for that? That's the way it works. It's got a good it's got a bit good bit of gore at the end, but it also just builds the tension slowly and wonderfully. Uh, and and I think really does service to this very creepy idea of of cannibals living among us and of cannibalism as this religious kind of ceremony. So that's We Are What We Are, and it is available on demand December 17th. Also available on demand, two films I have not seen yet, but I'm very interested in because of the people involved. The first up is Ours, which is currently available on demand, and it stars the late Paul Walker, who you know recently passed away, and many people have described it as his one of his finest performances. Uh, it's written and directed by Eric Hesserer, and it's a film that premiered at South by Southwest uh, and set during Hurricane Katrina, where Paul Walker plays uh, the father of a newborn baby who finds himself having to try and keep his infant daughter alive inside an incubator after the hospital's power goes out due to the storm. And so, uh, you know, Walker starred famously in in a lot of blockbusters, but he uh, did on occasion uh, star in some smaller movies that showed off that he was more than just a kind of good-looking action star. And this is supposed to be one of those films. And the other film I have to recommend is Wrong Cops. It is available on demand on December 20th. And it premiered at Sundance this year, written and directed by Quentin Dupieux, uh, who directed Rubber, which you may remember is the film about the tire, the sentient tire Mm. of destruction. This is about a group of crooked cops who look to dispose of a body that one of them uh, accidentally killed. And it stars, among other people, Marilyn Manson, Steve Little from Eastbound and Down, Grace Zabriskie, and Eric Wareheim of Tim and Eric. So with that kind of collection of people, it has to be at least somewhat interesting, if I'm sure incredibly strange. So that is Wrong Cops, and it is available on demand December 20th. 
On this episode is James Franco, the star of Spring Breakers, the star of Freaks and Geeks, a show that we love and have talked about on this podcast before. I think that's still streaming on Netflix. Star of many, many big movies. He's a writer, a director now. He's a student of, I think, most of the major higher learning centers on this continent. Pursuing and a, and a teacher, he's pursuing pursuing uh, PhDs and master's degrees all over the country, multiple ones at the same time. He's an artist. He's a, a gallery artist. He he is a very interesting figure. I, I mean, Allison, do you have any 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 general things you want to say first of all about Mr. Franco? Well, it's interesting to me that he's become this postmodern movie star, which is to say, like, he's more interested in reflecting on and kind of deconstructing the idea of movie stardom than he is actually being a movie star most hmm. of the time. You know, like, his big starring role in a traditional blockbuster this year was in Oz the Great and Powerful, in which he, he did not do, like, a riveting job in that lead role. He seems much more alive in either of these very academic kind of approaches to, um, you know, different topics in either in terms of either like representation or art or in playing himself. And it, it seems to be, it's, it's a really strange thing for an actor to have ended up in, but uh, especially someone who has proven, uh, you know, in Freaks and Geeks particularly, which I think is still probably his best straightforward role, that he can be a really good, both like, a uh, good leading man in a maybe traditional sense and a great comic actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah, I don't know what to make of the many, many different pursuits of Franco. <laughs> it's, he, it's bewildering to me. He is a really strange guy. And I mean, one of the things that I found really fascinating as I was getting ready to talk about him on this podcast is, look, you know, even doing this job, even watching, you know, uh, a dozen movies a week or so, there are still movies I haven't seen, but it's hard to release a movie that I've never heard of. And James Franco has made all kinds of movies I've never even heard of. And they're available on Netflix. He has two different movies on Netflix, Allison, for streaming that I'd never even heard of. One of them is called The Broken Tower, and that's uh, that was like his thesis film from NYU. And he wrote and directed and stars in it as this real life uh, uh, poet from like Park the nineteen 19- right? yeah from the nineteen thirties exactly. And and then he's also got this other one that he made I think with one of his professors from NYU, where he's one of the stars of it, and that's called The Letter. Uh, and I, I just watched a few minutes of both of these, um, and neither one really jumped out to me as a particularly fascinating movie where I wanted to make it one of my picks. But I mean, I'm, he, he's an interesting guy for a lot of reasons, but one of them I find interesting is that he does so much stuff. It's like 
he is one of the most prolific people around right now, and he just he seems completely or maybe not completely, but largely uninterested in like the reception of these things. It's like, you know, it's not like he's going way out of his way to promote them to the high heavens. He's really interested in making these things. He wants to do, and he's not all that interested or less interested in, you know, the promotional aspects of this. Now, of course, if he makes a big Hollywood movie, like if when he makes Oz, I'm sure he did a junket for Oz or whatever. But but he's just like cranking these things out as objects, and he's a little less concerned with how they're necessarily received, which I find kind of interesting as well. Yeah, and he's also made a lot of, I mean, in addition to other things, I didn't even mention, but, you know, he has the movie coming up, Palo Alto, which is based on his own collection of short stories in which he also stars. But uh, that he, you know, has made a lot of films that are about filmmaking or about, like, images on screen. About you know, art. Like, about art. Well, I mean, like, he was in Interior Leather Bar, right, mm-hmm. which is, like, a replication of a missing sequel like the cut sequence and cruising right that was supposedly those minutes that were cut to get it uh an r rating as opposed to an nc-17 rating right that become this kind of meta commentary on sexuality and what they're comfortable with um what he's comfortable with uh you know he's uh starred in for whatever reason a nickelodeon telenovela called hollywood heights he appeared in six episodes no one knows why <laughs> Uh, you know, he made a film about Salmoneo. Uh, he's played James Dean in another film. You know, he, he even he worked with Gus Van Sant on those two. I think they were kind of installations about uh, River Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So he's very aware of the idea of 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 acting and representations on screen as well, or at least very interested in it. I don't know if any of these projects so far have brought up a lot of like deep insight into these topics, or at least any more given his place as a major movie star. Do you feel like you understand who James Franco is? Uh, That's an interesting question. No. And it's an interesting question because he specifically does so much uh, as himself, you know, like he makes James Franco the character in so much of his work. And, and yet I don't feel like I really have a great grasp on who that guy is, you know, that He's he's done these things where he 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 talks about himself as this idea in quotes like James Franco in quotes, but I I don't ever really get the sense that I'm I'm really understanding who he is necessarily so much as I'm getting a sense of uh, that uh, the idea that he uses himself as like his own like as a, as an extension of his art or if James Franco in air quotes is a work of art unto itself, you know, like that it's this ongoing art project that he's creating, which includes all of this different stuff, his career, his celebrity, like everything he does is all part of uh, all part of uh, this thing. And and amongst the more eccentric things he's done is one of my my picks. But I mean, he called some of this he's called some of these things that he's done like performance art. And you wonder if he does some of these things. Uh, just for that reason, just to see what happens, just as experiments, you know, like he may very well be the most most popular, like experimental film artist in the world right now. Although I don't know that the people that are fans of him would necessarily think of him that way. But if you just think about 
like the sheer the, – the reach that he has, the broad reach that he has and that some of his weirder things have been seen by, I think you'd have to put him in that category of like really popular experimental artists. Uh, you know, people who make their living making experimental art might, might be infuriated to hear me say that, but I think he kind of has – is a force to be reckoned with nonetheless. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do admire the amount of work he's willing to put out there in this way that's kind of fearless that, as you said, he doesn't seem that worried about whether or not people are going to praise it. Right. And he also, we should mention before we move on, he's been writing criticism of movies. Oh, that's right. Vice. He has like a column there. So yes. He's reviewed he his own movies, in fact. <laughs> he reviewed Spring Breakers. <laughs> Yeah. He reviewed Spring Breakers and had uh, – here's a shocker, Allison. He had very positive things to say about it. I can't believe that. Can you, can you believe it? Yeah, yeah I mean I, 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 we, we, we tease him a little bit and I'm sure you know, that's going to happen some more over the course of the show. But he, he really has in a weird way become a bit of a punchline to some extent. You know, He seems like an easy target I think because he does so much weird stuff. But uh, I actually admire him too, and I, I think he does kind of get a bad rap. I mean, he is a guy who's made big Hollywood movies, certainly, uh, and still does. Obviously, he made several this year, including Oz, which I didn't hate. Uh, but he, you know, he's willing to experiment, and you rarely get the sense that he's doing paycheck jobs just for the paycheck. You know, that usually he brings something interesting to them, even if the movie isn't great. He is usually interesting in them, and. If nothing less, it's fun to try to figure out what he's doing in these things. Like, why did he host the Oscars? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I have, really don't know. I mean, it was really something. I mean, I think James Franco has some has some skills, which I'm sure we'll talk about over the course of the, our picks. But to me, it's like you know, gregarious master of ceremonies is not necessarily a role I would put him in. And no. and I don't think that he pulled it off. <laughs> no, and placing him opposite Bubbly and Hathaway, where he is so much more kind of laconic and kind of stone, kind of relaxed, mellow, kind of a, a vibe. It was just it just made him look kind of grumpy and cranky next to her. Like it wasn't a good fit at all either. So I don't know. Maybe it was all again. Maybe that was just performance art. Maybe it was just an experiment. Like I think when he was asked about it, didn't he say something like, "Well, they asked me if they were silly enough to ask me to do it. Why wouldn't I do it? You know, like it's an." Ex- chance to do something weird and different and and yeah. and, and, and broaden sure my range that. or whatever yeah <laughs> but i i mean i admire his willingness to be like i'm gonna try this even though it's not my comfort zone right there's a fearlessness there if nothing else certainly all right well let's get to our picks what's your first uh, james franco pick my first james franco pick is a film that he directed and we've mentioned he's directed a few films among them a documentary about Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. a film about Salmoneo, a film about uh, Hart Crane, right, and uh, a film about the uh, the leather bar scenes in Cruising. Uh, but this is probably his most coherent film-like film, though it's still somewhat experimental. It is As I Lay Dying, which is available for rent on iTunes, Voodoo, YouTube, Hitless, and Sony. Uh, this film screened in the Uncertain Regard sidebar at Cannes this year. And uh, it is, it's definitely the most whole of his films, though it, it's, of course, as is uh, often been the case of these, the subject matters he's chosen, it's difficult subject matter. It's based on William Faulkner's novel, 
which is of the type that is largely considered unfilmable. It's written in stream of consciousness style. It's narrated by 15 different characters <laughs> as they go to bury family matriarch Addie Bundren. And Franco's and, like, unfilmable sounds great. Right. Sign me up. Um, it's, you know, it's also, of course, considered one of the great novels of the 20th century. And he's, he's aligned himself often, or at least expressed a lot of public interest in classics right even if they are difficult so the trick that he like kind of pulls off here is in making creating the sense of this being uh told from shifting perspectives by using split screen a lot i would say probably 75 percent of the film is shot in split screen the split screen the both sides of the screen including looks usually within the same screen so even though they even if they don't necessarily match up coherently, an example in early in the film is that uh, one side of the screen shows the daughter uh, sitting at her mother's deathbed, looking towards the camera where someone's come in the door. The other side shows who's come in, uh, Franco, who plays one of the main characters, Darl, and we hear him say something, but we don't see him. He doesn't. His lips don't move. <laughs> Um, it's almost as if it's hard to say whether this is a conversation that's a flashback or if it's something that's kind of happening in one of their memories. But there's a lot of this kind of slipperiness in which it's almost dreamlike, which really suits the the source material in which oftentimes the characters, since they're all telling these monologues in their head, uh, they're often more eloquent than they are in person because they're supposed to be basically poor country folk. Gonna die, Joe. Our mother. Addie Bundren's gonna die. The dark current runs. Fading swirls move along the surface for an instant. Silent and permanent. Profoundly significant. As though something just beneath the surface has waked for a moment. But basically, this is a story of them bringing the de- their dead matriarch, Addie, the mother of most of the characters, to be buried where she says she wanted to, in this town that's about uh, a day's ride away. And her husband, played by Tim Blake Nelson, has his own reasons for wanting to do this. Uh, meanwhile, all of his children kind of basically suffer uh, over the course of this very difficult journey uh, in, over which the body starts to rot as well. And it, as much as it doesn't entirely work, I have to say this is a pretty admirable attempt at, and, and a pretty solid one at, at bringing a work that's not really inherently visual to screen. I was pretty impressed by it. And, and Franco has another he has the rights to the sound and the fury another faulkner novel that he is oh, he is God. supposed to work on next <laughs> okay and i actually you know it doesn't fill me with dread that news does not fill me with dread because this uh this actually uh, he actually hit on something interesting in this one uh i should also point out in addition to franco who's probably the weakest of the actors in it and tim blake nelson who is uh it does a very good job the film also co-stars logan marshall green from prometheus uh, as well as danny mcbride in a small role so you know the plus side of being an actor is you can cast all your fancy friends in your movie 
so that's As I Lay Dying. It's available for rent uh, on most of the usual suspects. I liked, I liked one phrase you said there towards the end, Allison. I think this could be – someday this could be like Franco's – you know, the name of his memoir, which I'm sure he will write, uh, you know, a pretty admirable attempt, you know, like <laughs> you don't always like what he does, but you're always kind of admire the spirit in which it was made. Right. That seems yeah. to be a, a way to sum up a lot of what he does. So my picks for this episode, we've already mentioned how James Franco plays James Franco a lot. And I decided for my picks, I was just going to do those kinds of things, just pick things where James Franco playing himself. And the first of them is something I had never actually seen before this podcast, but is really one of the strangest things he's ever done, which is saying something because it's James Franco and everything he does is strange. But this was when James Franco appeared on General Hospital. Uh, and this was not a case where he did like one episode of General Hospital or a two episode guest spot. He recurred as a character for several years, Allison. He mm-hmm. kept going back. He would film a bunch and then he would his character would kind of disappear for a while and they would come back again. He this like over the course of three years he appeared on this show. And he, he played Franco. Not necessarily James Franco, but he played Franco, this artist type. But it, it, it is clearly designed as a character that is meant to represent a side of James Franco, or at least a, again, one of these like air quotes James Franco's that he can use to explore these ideas. And there's a, there's an interesting profile of Franco that you can find online that was originally in New York Magazine. It was written by Sam Anderson. And he describes what's kind of interesting about about James Franco on General Hospital at one point. So I'm just going to I'm just going to read what he says here. He says uh, the part fit nicely into a constellation of ideas Franco had already been thinking about. The difference between high art and mass art, the space between performance and real life, the vagaries of taste. So Franco called General Hospital, one of TV's most popular and long-running soap operas, and the result is a small, double-edged pop culture masterpiece. A black hole of publicity in which everything works both within the frame of the show and as a commentary on Franco's career. Uh, so that's the quote there. So yeah, basically Basically, he had the idea, and he went to General Hospital and and pitched it to them. This wasn't even a case of them looking for a guest star or asking him. He had the idea and brought it to them, and they and they liked it. And there is something really weirdly watchable about these episodes. It's not a goof. I mean, it is sort of a goof too. But you know, he's playing an artist who is interested in in death and. Uh, and, and basically is obsessed with one of the other characters on General Hospital. And Allison, I've never watched General Hospital, so I can't really uh, – I, I don't really get all the connections between the characters. And what you can find on YouTube if you look for this are someone went to the trouble to sort of edit Franco's scenes together. So you can watch an episode that's just his scenes. You know, it's, It ends up being like – between like 10 and 15 minutes, I think, or thereabouts. Uh, but it, like what he's doing is really kind of fascinating and, and bizarre, you know? I mean, uh, the first couple of episodes, it's like his art gallery, but he's willing to destroy the art that he could sell. And then he's talking about art. You know, he says, like, at one point, he uh, says to this woman who he's interested in, he's like, the best art is understood by the fewest number of people. 
which again could be like the name of a James Franco uh, memoir someday. But it also probably ta- is like him addressing why he's doing this, maybe. You know Jason Morgan? Not yet. Tell me about him. He's one of Mr. Quinto's associates. They're coffee importers. I love coffee. Introduce me. Oh, I don't know if that would be such a good idea. See, Jason's not what you would call um, user-friendly, and he doesn't know anything about art. The best art is understood by the fewest number of people. Oh, okay. Well, you're incredibly popular. Does that mean you're not very good? I'm good. He may be better. He's not an artist. Look again. He's got the look. I want to meet him. Make it happen, or I will. You're welcome, and you owe me. You know, it's kind of cool how he's smuggling in these really highbrow ideas about art into General Hospital. And he's doing it while also kind of fulfilling all the roles of General Hospital, where he's still, you know, it's, it's soapy, and he's got this relationship with this woman, and... You know, I found it really interesting stuff. I really have to say, I thought it was really kind of fun to go through these on YouTube. I had a blast doing it. Allison, have you seen? I know when it happened, seen, you you were yeah. definitely into it. I don't know if you I've ever seen watched some it. Clips of it, but I didn't keep up with it. But here's my so I, I want to know: Do you think that these ideas are really? Has he brought actual complex ideas to General Hospital, or has he just is he just talking about? big concepts that seem more sophisticated? I think I think it's maybe closer to the latter, but. I, I, I admire the fact that he's trying. Again, wh- how did you put it before? What was it? The uh, the <laughs> pretty, pretty admirable, admirable – uh, uh, it was the pretty admirable attempt. I mean he's trying. You know, like there's probably only so much you can do on General Hospital without – you know, getting people to change the channel. The idea is to kind of, I guess, smuggle the ideas in or at least to to get people kind of thinking about that stuff while they're also watching a soap opera. And I think, I think he pulls it off. And the thing is, like, so many people, you know, they, you know, there's cameos and things like that. People play themselves a lot in movies, right? But they tend to do it in a way where they're like, it's really over the top and outrageous um, they play, you know, like, oh, they're a diva on the set, or they're really dumb, or they throw coffee in someone's face. It's like, it's not even like self-satire as it is just like living into cliches of Hollywood, you know? It's not even like satirizing Hollywood. It's kind of like embodying the cliches, you know? Yeah. And Franco's not doing that. He actually is interested in investigating this image, you know? He's, I mean, he's, I, if he's making fun of himself in this, he's doing it with such a straight face that it's... The joke is like three layers buried beneath other stuff. I don't know. I found it really com- surprisingly compelling to watch, actually. Well, my next pick is also a James Franco playing himself uh, role. Uh, I, there are certainly a few out there. He's played himself quite a few times. And, and just his appearance in things sometimes is the joke. But this is... Klaus and Greta, which is an episode from season four, uh, episode nine of 30 Rock, which is currently streaming on Netflix. And this is an episode in which James Franco appears as himself and has his manager arrange for to set up a fake relationship with the character Jenna, played by Jen Krakowski, uh, in order to counter rumors that he is involved in a romantic relationship with a Japanese body pillow. Yes. Uh, it's, you know, uh, it's not the first time Franco has taken a run at the various rumors about his sexuality, but this is a particularly goofy one involving uh, 
the pillow, which is named Kumiko, and his uh, the various things he said. I, I, one of his better lines is, uh, "Objects are made by men and used for many purposes, but we never love objects." Um, as as he's trying to convince Jenna to be in this fake relationship, in which they do five public dates a week and agree to one fight per month. But uh, what I think is interesting about this performance, other than Franco's really gameness to just make fun of himself, is that it is this commentary on him as a as a sex a sex symbol, which is something that you know he is, I guess, in his career. But he's undermined so much by just doing these strange roles, or just by playing against that type. That it, in this case he and Jenna are in this fake relationship in which she starts to get caught up in believing it's real because he's romancing her for the paparazzi. Uh, and so when he plants this big movie style kiss on her, she can't separate that from the reality that he is in a much weirder, has much weirder taste. This is nice. Your hand feels like a pillow that's been in the microwave. Thanks. Okay. Well, I'll see you tomorrow. Wait. Oh, it's okay, you can stop. I was wrong. What? I thought it was a paparazzo, but it's just some loser taking a picture of his kid. Oh, right. Uh, of course. And that was fake. Did you know paparazzo is singular paparazzi? Kamiko taught me that. I'll see you at dawn so you can get caught coming out of my apartment. I'll loan you a shirt. Try to look like you just got drilled. You know the deal. But I, I think that there's something to that and hit, and Franco's seeming discomfort with playing a traditional sex symbol that is, is interesting. Like, he looks much more alive on screen playing, you know, uh, a, a Hollywood weirdo who ends up having a three-way uh at the end of the episode with a, a surprising character. Um, this, the whole storyline is a little bit like the Troy McClure storyline in, uh, in <laughs> the Simpsons, uh, in his marriage. But it's, uh, it's a really funny performance. And in some ways, he looks much more comfortable playing Goofy in this way than, I would say, in something like Oz, you know, in which he's playing this uh, romantic object for multiple characters. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a very solid episode of 30 Rock, and it's one of the more interesting Franco as Franco performances that I can remember. That is 30 Rock, Klaus, and Greta, currently streaming on Netflix. Okay, well, my last pick is, I guess, the most recent James Franco as James Franco performance, at least that I know. Although, who knows, in the, mean t- in the time since that movie, this movie has come out, he might have made three movies, appeared you know, in four stage plays – uh, written a thesis, who knows? I, it's hard to keep track. But uh, the movie is this summer's This Is the End, which was directed by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Uh, they were writing partners, of course, for a long time. They wrote Super Bad and a bunch of movies. This is the first thing that they've wrote and directed together. And James Franco plays himself amongst a cast that is uh, basically everyone is playing themselves, including Seth Rogen, Jay Baruchel, Craig Robinson. Jonah Hill and Danny McBride, who's probably the funniest, I think, of the oh, bunch. Yeah. I mean, he really gets the the kind of the the standout role. He gets kind of the best material, I think. But and uh, two really good entrance scenes. Yes, he he really he gets a a spotlight entrance that is 
really just one of the great like movie star entrances uh, in recent memory. It's pretty fabulous. And a functioning revolver from the movie Flyboys. Old Faithful. Jesus. Things real. No, I kept this from the movie. Yeah, this is the yeah. actual revolver. I see. Yeah, yeah. that's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Could you put that down? Loaded. Love it. Awesome. Love it. Can you just I always keep my props. That's really cool. Always keep my props. I know how to handle it. He knows what he's doing. I like this bit. I like it. I get it. Yeah, let me see. It's real. It's heavy. Let me see. I got. The movie is set at James Franco's house, quote unquote, basically. Uh, All of these guys are over at Franco's house for a big Hollywood party with lots of drugs and stuff. And everyone's hanging out when the actual biblical apocalypse occurs, uh, complete with the rapture and demons and everything. And essentially, the uh, after the chaos kind of dies down, uh, a bunch of the guys, including Rogan and, and Baruchel, Franco, uh, they all kind of barricade themselves in Franco's house and wait for help to arrive, which basically never does. And so it really becomes this this chance for extended improv sessions on the idea of like writing out the apocalypse basically and like what would happen if a bunch of guys were kind of sitting around waiting for the end and uh there's some great comedy bits including one with franco and danny mcbride over the the kind of uh the the right to possess the like one porno mag in the house they're like arguing over it in a really kind of incredibly profane way and again, it's it's James Franco playing James Franco. But, I mean, there are some jokes that kind of are pointed at the typical, you know, making fun of ourselves kind of thing. But, you know, it's interesting to compare his performance to someone like Michael Sarah in the movie, right? Who plays Michael Sarah as like crazy, coke-snorting, you know... Womanizing. Womanizing, yeah. yeah, promiscuous, kind of like, almost like abusing women. Like, just so over the top that it's like the joke is, well, he's not like this at all, right? Whereas the Franco approach here and elsewhere is more like to kind of actually play like what we think of him as. Like, no one thinks of Michael Sarah as a coke-snorting, you know, promiscuous, you know, jerk. But we do kind of think of James Franco as this like rich weirdo who does all kinds of crazy stuff. And would have a house and would have terribly pretentious art. Right. I was gonna, that's exactly what I was going to say. This weird kind of ugly modern house with weird art. And, and he like willingly lets himself be made fun of in a way that is like it cuts at him instead of like in a way that bounces off him. Like the Michael Sarah jokes are funny, but we don't ever think for a moment that we're seeing the real Michael Sarah. Like James Franco gets at something that's kind of more interesting and fun and in that he seems to be playing a less fictionalized James Franco. You know, whether it is or not, he he indulges our our desire to see the real guy, right? And to play against that, which is which is something I admire. And also to come off like genuinely badly, whereas someone like Michael Sarah is doing it so over the top. Like even like the way like the final fate of his character kind of makes James Franco look bad, you know, like yeah. petty and kind of a jerk. Which well, again also he's like the forces of evil in in the basic storyline, right? Like he is the 
the Hollywood douchebag side seducing away Seth Rogen's character. That's right. From his, his actual best friend. That's right. Right. The, right. the sort of the theme of the movie beneath the whole apocalypse thing is the idea that Seth Rogen and Jay Baruchel used to be friends closer friends anyway and that Seth has kind of sold out and gone Hollywood and and he's drifting apart from Jay and Jay feels like he's losing his friend and doesn't fit in anymore and the reason is because Rogan is hanging out with Franco too much essentially yeah seducing him to the dark side of Hollywood so yeah again yeah he's kind of the non like demon villain of the move of the movie you're right, which, again, is kind of awesome. And it is also just a super funny movie. So uh, if you haven't seen it, it's uh, available now on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. And it is called This Is The End. Morning. Who are you? My name's Aileen. My real name's Al, but truth be told, I ain't from this planet, y'all. Alien? They call me. Why are you here? I saw y'all in there. They like nice people. Thought maybe I'd bail you out. Everyone could use a little bailing out once in a while. Why? Why not? Come on, y'all. Why you acting suspicious? Get in. Where are we going? Go wherever you all want. Cotty. Got the right idea? Come on. I'll be your chauffeur. Give me a chauffeur. Yeah. Y'all can play Beyonce. All right, it's time for our listener's choice review. First of all, let me just say, we, we haven't mentioned it yet. You might hear, once again, sound quality. Not quite as perfect as we like to have it. Once again, we're recording over Skype. Allison, the rabies hasn't cleared up yet, huh? No, I'm still biting people. The it's foaming, hard for me to resist. They look so delicious. The foaming at the mouth hasn't subsided yet. No. Although I offered to just, you know, have like a cloth that you could dab your mouth with, but you said that was yeah, well, some you know, sort of health hazard, like, I guess. You were having to wear body armor to come over. It just seemed a little too much to ask for you. Right, you know? right. Uh, but yeah, so hopefully, we said it last time, but hopefully on our next episode you'll be... Uh, you know, you'll be back to full strength and we'll be able to uh, record together. But uh, we had to do it the Skype route one more time, but hopefully it still sounds pretty good. I listened to the last episode with it and it, it sounded OK to me. It didn't sound terrible. So hopefully this is this is all right. But hopefully, again, it's just a just a temporary thing. So with that said, let's get to our listeners choice review. And on our last show, you guys chose Spring Breakers. It got 55 percent of the vote. Over Russian Ark, which got 30%, and Michelle Gondry's Is the Man Who is Tall Happy, which only got uh, 15% of the vote. So, grab your string bikinis and your hot pink ski masks. It's time to head to spring break. The film here was directed by Harmony Kareen, who's made some of the stranger movies of the last 20 years, including Mr. Lonely, which was about a melancholic Michael Jackson impersonator, and he made Trash Humpers, which is, as advertised, about people who hump trash. Spring Breakers probably has to be his most commercial 
work to date. It's also, I think, his most successful. It's a, it's made thirty million dollars worldwide, which for a five million dollar movie is not uh, bad, Alice. And it's actually been pretty successful. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah, and uh, part of the appeal, part of the box office draw, I'm sure, was Harmony Korine's very canny casting of Disney uh, icons like Vanessa Hudgens and Selena Gomez, and then letting them take a sledgehammer to their wholesome images by doing drugs, robbing uh, chicken shacks, and generally just shooting bullets into most of western Florida. And Now, I'm not sure if James Franco's role as Alien counts as stunt casting. He's playing a small-time rapper and drug dealer who bails the girls out of jail and then Sven gollies them into the the ways of the gangster life, although he's not playing James Franco here, so I don't know. For him, this may actually just be a, a regular role, but it's certainly attention-getting nonetheless. So the movie has several commercial hooks, like all those actors. It's got beautiful day-glow cinematography by Benoit Deby. But these are all, Allison, these are all superficial pleasures. So... My question to you, Allison, is amongst all of these commercial hooks, this superficial pleasure, uh, did you find anything beneath the surface of uh, Spring Breakers? No, that is the question, isn't it? I, I, you know, I wrote when I, I first saw this film, uh, South by Southwest, that I don't know where the air quotes go. Mm. And I, I feel watching it again, I'm still not sure. It is a film, maybe it's the perfect James Franco film in this way, in that it moves between irony and sincerity in ways it, imperceptibly. I don't think you can pick a single moment and call it one or the other, but it seems to be powered by both of those forces simultaneously. And it is, you know, in theory about girls who all come from this, the relatively privileged background of going to college, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who go to spring break and then stay too long at spring break. They actually dabble in, in criminality, right? But then all of the sentiments that they express about, uh, you know, uh, everyone's gone, but we're stuck here. You see the same things every day. Uh, I don't, like, I don't know, is that supposed to be a heartfelt emotion being expressed? I can't tell, and I don't think I believe it. I really, I'm a little befuddled by this movie. I I think that it tries to do something I, I really can't pin down, and I feel like watching it, I'm halfway between being like very finding it very compelling and also finding it just uh, just this exercise in I don't know like self mockery almost or mocking the audience. And I, I I really don't know where I fall between that. Well, what about, what about you? Yeah, we're pretty much on the same page. You know, I saw it for the first time at South by Southwest as well. And I think we mentioned on the last show I wasn't in the greatest of health. I was kind of in a daze and a fog when I saw it. And I kind of expected to have a lot more clarity when I went through it this time. And I almost feel like I understand it less this time. Uh, I don't necessarily dislike watching it. The experience of watching it is interesting and pleasant and uh, certainly thought-provoking at times. But I I also am having a lot of trouble pinning down, like, what is actually going on here? Is it a satire? Is it a celebration? Is it an indictment? It, like, what is it? I, it? All of those things in one, I guess. I it, it, It's... Its meaning, its ultimate meaning, at least to me, is kind of ambiguous. And and I think to some degree that's to its credit. It's certainly a, a text that invites, you know, it, it, you can't just watch it. You, I guess you could, but I can't just watch it and turn my brain off. I'm constantly kind of weighing what I'm seeing and thinking about what Corrine is trying to say. 
but I, I have to admit that I wish there was just a little bit more clarity there, that I had a little bit more of a better sense of what, in, what he was going for. And you know, watching it this time, when again I thought I would kind of come out of it with a much clearer view, I almost felt like I understood it better when I was in this kind of hallucinogenic state myself. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be – uh, you know, enjoyed or interpreted or watched anyway. I mean, the movie is is very dreamlike and very kind of elliptical, and by the end of it, very nightmarish it well as well. And I I wonder if it's almost meant to be watched under the influence of some kind of substance. I mean. I'm not sure if there is sort of a clear point or message that's supposed to be taken away from it. It may be more of an experiential thing that you're supposed to kind of drift away on these sometimes horrific and sometimes quite beautiful and sometimes simultaneously both images. Maybe that's the the big point. Yeah. You know, I think the kind of key moments in the movie is when they sing – the Britney Spears song on the beach. And right. it's this gorgeous setting, right? It's this like pink sunset as they're on the beach, with the piano there overlooking the ocean. And Franco sings with total sincerity. His character Alien sings uh, the song by Miss Britney Spears, little known pop star. Right. And they all join in. And then the real track takes over and we see the characters robbing, brutally robbing other spring breakers uh, as, as the music kind of swells. And it does seem like the key to the movie, but in a way that is not helpful at all in terms of understanding it. Right. But it's certainly, I think, the most powerful moment in the movie. Uh, and it, it, like throughout the movie, the idea of spring break as this place, you're, it is this kind of dreamlike place, right? Yeah. It's not – we know that they're in Florida but have mm-hmm. no idea where. I and think it's, it's St. Petersburg or somewhere around there. Yeah. But like it, it, it's kind of – the way it works is almost well. There's certainly like the logic is deliberately very fuzzy, right? right? And most of it, almost all of it, is shot in slow motion. There are very few shots that seem like normal speed, or you know, everything is is you know slowed down, kind of like you know fitting with the dubstep music. Like it's just like this haze of and this swirl of like slow motion images. But yeah, as to what they're adding up to, I don't know. But the, I mean, the, the images really are so striking. I mean, those. The, the shots of the, of the women in the bikinis with the ski masks, with the Uzis, you know, or that, you know, that great uh, Britney Spears sequence where – and then again, like the scenes where – in that sequence where they're robbing people, which are all in slow motion. And like there's this amazing shot of like Franco like jumping on a bed in slow motion and his dreadlocks are whipping in the air and he has this incredible gleeful smile on his face. There's, there's something you know, kind of wonderful about it, even as what they're doing is absolutely objectionable and horrible. You know, it's. Uh, but what to make of it is something I think we're going to have to keep have to keep yeah. wrestling with. So the art critic Jerry Saltz at New York Magazine, uh, he was actually writing about Kanye West's Bound Two video, in right. which he's on the motorcycle. But he wrote something that I thought about in conjunction to Spring Breakers. So I'm going to read you a passage here. He says that. He thinks it represents a part of a collective cultural fracturing via an idiom I call the new uncanny. When performers like Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, Lady Gaga, and yes, Jeff Koons and Marina Abramovich try so hard to showcase and communicate how sincere they are, instead they reveal how out of touch they are from each other, from themselves, from us. These are not just famous performers. They are performers of fame. 
In their grandiose sincerity, their attempt to keep it real, West says his passion for, is for humanity and his, ode is, and his art is totally about beauty, truth, awesomeness. These stars become alien things, automata, odd gods before our eyes. By some bizarre alchemy, they then toggle back into demented sincerity while simultaneously remaining alien, other, apart. They become psychological quantum particles in two states at once. Sincerity and fame combine, float free of common rules. Now, obviously, Harmony Korine is not a star in the way that we would say Kanye West is, but his performers are in this. He has picked performers who all have this weight of stardom to them. And I do think that in some ways, the film is aspiring to capture this idea in the same way, which is that you have three, you know, Disney stars, Disney princesses, really, you know, of the kind of, of these like giant franchises enacting this very vague kind of uh, approximation of, of college students wanting to get away from it all. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a strange extreme, but at the same time, like attempted sincere, uh, take on that and there is some weird power to that divide that i thought it 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 applied in some ways i mean it's getting in that at that idea of like how much of this is a joke and how much of it is meant sincerely and can it be both at the same time and it's it it is it's like if there is a joke here it's really hard to pinpoint it and 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 nail down i mean there are some of those great scenes with james franco like where he's uh, touring us around all of you know all of his stuff with his shorts in every color and his dark tanning oil and all this. I mean that that scene is really funny, uh, just because of how wonderful Franco's performance is, and I think in general his performance here is really uh, terrific and incredibly memorable and quotable and one of the best things he's done in a while. Uh, but I mean, what it, what is the joke there? What am I like? Other than the fact that it's just so wonderfully, outrageously over the top performed, like what is what is he making fun of there? I, uh, capitalism, consumerism. Uh, I don't know. I feel like, like if he is if he is, it's a very cruel comedy, right? You know, to make fun of this kid who grew up poor and has made all of his money through a life of crime and now has collected all of the usual tropes of, you know, uh, that you attach to either hip hop stars or to criminals, right. including a Scarface poster. Right. So if that's the joke, it's not a very nice one. Right. It's but a very it, easy one. Right, exactly. But he, uh, to me, the movie complicates it by kind of making us like that character. I mean, there's something... Yeah, he's the tragic figure. Right, and there's something very kind of charming about him at times, you know, and... Uh, him, you know, the way he, you know, he certainly is like seducing these women to the, the, the quote unquote dark side, but, uh, but there actually isn't anything like sinister about his motivations necessarily, right? Like he just likes them and wants them to kind of join in. You know what I mean? It's not like he's thinking of, you know, it's not like he's trying to kidnap them and sell them into, I don't know, slavery or something. He just, he likes these young women. He thinks they're attractive and, and finds, uh, eventually he says he fall, he, he loves them, that they're his soulmates, you know, like, right. uh, and what's sad about him is that he like, we understand that all of the girls will eventually go back to school. Right. 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 They all eventually decide they've been at the party too long and it's time to go back to school. But he, he lives in spring break forever. Right. <laughs> he as no, he says, no normalcy to go back to, as he says many, many times. Yeah. 
but there, but there are some, you know, there's there's some really good scenes in this movie, and uh, I think Franco is great. Again, I still can't quite formulate what it all means, but there's something there that I kept kind of coming back to and thinking about, and and uh, I couldn't quite get out of my mind. I mean, as, I think as uh, you can see, I was like, it's a movie that I've got a lot of thoughts about, but not very coherent ones. Yeah, and I don't know that it necessarily has one particular underlying agenda. I don't know that Corinne could say the movie is about this one thing. You know, I, I don't know that he's that type of filmmaker even. I will say this. The song Every Time, which is the Britney Spears ballad that they sing yes. at the piano, is a song that Britney supposedly wrote uh, in response to her breakup with Justin Timberlake. And it is a song about her like heartbreak and plea for forgiveness uh, for hurting Justin Timberlake, supposedly. Okay. And I think what's interesting about that choice of the song is that here you have this pop star, you know, composing this like simulacra of an intimate revelation um, that at the same time is all based on very public knowledge about this public relationship uh, that, you know, then these characters sing and the listeners are also supposed to relate to. And I think kind of there's something to that as well about this deeply like kind of emotional commitment to an emotional experience that actually no one can relate to Mm. who can relate to Britney Spears and whatever happened to her with Justin Timberlake, you know? Right. And I feel like there's something that maybe to me is how I feel about the movie, which is a combination of like, it's like a deeply sincere expression of an emotion that I think is impossible. <laughs> right. <laughs> that and I can't relate to at all. And it's a deeply sincere joke too. Like there, right. yeah, it, that's, yeah. Well, if anyone has a grand theory of how, you know, it's all about Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake, they should send us an email oh, please, and, please, and explain please. it all to us. Cause I think as we've, we've said here, you know, we're, we, we, there's something here we like, but we don't know quite what it is. So we're still wrestling with it. But I feel like it's a fun movie to wrestle with. It's one I wouldn't mind wrestling with again at some point down the line. I certainly will continue to quote James Franco's character for many, many years. Shorts in every color is not going away anytime soon. <laughs> so that is Spring Breakers, and it is available now for streaming on Amazon Prime. All right, let's wrap things up with our Behind the Eight Ball segment where we count down three new titles on streaming, two listener recommendations, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My List. (laughs) Right, Allison? Yes. Yes. Allison, you're going to go first? Yes, I am. Are you ready to go? I am ready. All right, how about we start with three new releases? All right. First up is The Angel's Share, which is new to streaming on Netflix and is the latest film from the great director Ken Loach. One of his uh, slightly softer films, kind of like the recent Looking for Eric, though no film from Ken Loach is without its social commentary and a bit of gritty realism. And uh, certainly this one has that as well. It's a Scottish comedy about a man who just escaped going to prison. He's instead on community service. He's trying to turn over a new leaf after uh, a history of some violent crime. And then he uh, turns out to have a great nose for whiskey, for fine whiskey, and discovers a like, cask of like very priceless whiskeys being auctioned off. And in it, he sees the possibility for escape into a new life. Um, and that is currently streaming on Netflix. 
Also new to Netflix is Sightseers, which is a film from Ben Wheatley, the director of The Kill List, Down Terrace, and most recently, A Field in England. This is a dark comedy about a couple who go on a camper tour of the British countryside and who start murdering less polite fellow travelers. It's kind of a relationship film as Killing Spree. So that's also on Netflix. And finally, new to Hulu is A Film Unfinished. This is a 2010 documentary from Yael Herzonski about a unfinished German propaganda film entitled The Ghetto, which depicted the Warsaw Ghetto uh, two months before the mass killings there. And for a long time, it was used as a kind of flawed record of, of what life was like in the ghetto until they discovered another reel that showed outtakes demonstrating how much the scenes were staged uh, to kind of show the callousness of the people being depicted. Hmm. Uh, and so the film becomes this really great, uh, uh, you know, inquiry into the idea of what we take for granted at, uh, in terms of seeing, like, truths that we take for granted, uh, including a moment where five actual survivors of uh, the Warsaw Ghetto are invited to view the footage and the, their reactions are filmed. So uh, it's, a, it's a very unusual film, a film unfinished, which is new to Hulu. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? Okay, first up is from Elroy from Melbourne, and he writes... For me, one of the year's best films has been The Reluctant Fundamentalist. With The Reluctant Fundamentalist, Mira Nair challenges us to create our own thoughts, emotions, and feelings about September 11th and the weeks, days, months, years following it. Many questions were raised, but maybe what Mira Nair was really trying to say with this film was that the people of America were not the only victims of 9-11. The flags whom the forces responsible of 9-11 hide behind are victims too. Intelligent films like that just reel me in like a fish taking the bait. I loved it, and best of all, I watched it on demand. In the U.S., it is available via Showtime On Demand uh, if you have Xfinity. So you can check it out there. And our second recommendation is from B. Trench, who writes, In terms of good streaming picks, there's been a lot of 2013 catch-up on my end. Just watch Drug War, now available on Netflix. Strongly recommended as it has more thrills and engaging sequences than in many Hollywood films from this year. Plus, it's the best way to get into Johnny Toe's films for those who haven't really seen any of his work. And he writes that it throws in another recommendation that he also saw Pieta from Kim Ki Duck. Really messed up film that isn't for everybody, but the late night Friday, Saturday gore hounds will appreciate it. A very selective piece of cinema from a provocative filmmaker in the ranks of Harmony Corinne or Lars von Trier. Mm. So that is Drug War that is available on Netflix. Okay, and how about one random film from your my list? You gave me number 41, which is one of those films I've had for a long time on there. It is, uh, it's actually one I'm, I can't believe I've never gotten around to seeing. Citizen Ruth. What? I know. Film starring Laura Dern, you know, as a chemical huffing woman who uh, turns up pregnant, becomes the center of a giant pro-life, pro-choice media circus. Satirical film uh, about the whole abortion debate. Yeah, I've never seen it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and considering it's Alexander Payne, that's terrible. I am shocked. Yeah. Shocked yeah. and appalled. As you should be. Mm. Well, Matt, are you ready? I'm, I don't know if I can come back from that. I'm so, my, so know, rocked. I'm rocked moment. to my very core, Allison. But you're shattered. I, I, I am shattered. All right. I think I'm, I'm ready. All right. Three new films. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with uh, the film Prince Avalanche, which is streaming on 
uh, Netflix. It's the new film from David Gordon Green, who uh, returns to his indie roots after years of big-budget Hollywood movies with this very uh, charming, low-key film about a couple of guys, played by Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch, who uh, repair a their working on this quiet little country road after it's been destroyed in a forest fire. And uh, it's just a lovely little movie with great performances. I think, you know, that there are things that you can read into it about it being a kind of a metaphor for David Gordon Green's career, which I think is very uh, interesting to kind of ponder as well. Uh, but Rudd and Hirsch, above all, are great. And there are some really, really lovely sequences um, and just a nice little movie worth checking out. So that's Prince Avalanche, available on Netflix. Also available on Netflix is uh, a documentary about a world that I just find endlessly fascinating, which is the world of pro wrestling. Uh, this new documentary is called Glow, the Story of the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, which is about this short-lived women's pro wrestling promotion that was hugely popular in the mid-1980s and then died out completely a few years later. The reasons why potentially are addressed in the film. Uh, the whole thing may have been a tax write-off for a rich guy. Uh, mm-hmm. It may have been a, basically an infomercial in disguise. Basically, this like billionaire uh, funded the whole project. He was a guy who owned a lot of products and companies, and he would package the programming with the commercials already built in and then sell them to stations. So it was essentially like a very entertaining infomercial. Uh, but the, the documentary, it's brief. But it's a nice overview. It has a lot of heart. You get to see a lot of the women from uh, the Federation from back then and what's become of them and how important a role it played in their lives. And and there's some very touching stuff in it as well, actually, because, you know, some of them have lived uh, hard lives uh, after uh, fame, as a lot of uh, pro wrestlers do. And we get to see them. They basically have a reunion in the film. Uh, that's sort of the structure of it. And we get to see their reunion. And there's some very touching moments there as well. So that's Glow, the story of the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. That's available on Netflix. And finally, another new documentary on Netflix. This one called Our Nixon. And it's about the world of the Nixon White House. Uh, the backstory here is that some of Nixon's aides, including H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman and Dwight Chapin, spent a lot of time filming what was going on in the Nixon White House on Super 8mm home movies, and they shot all this footage, and it basically just sat on a shelf in some archive for decades. No one ever found it, no one ever used it, and then this documentary filmmaker, Penny Lane, found it and assembled this film out of the archival materials. Um, there are interviews in it, but all the interviews are archival as well, not uh, from these Super 8 movies, obviously, but sort of interviews they've done over the years with you know different news outlets, different other kind of TV documentaries, PBS, what have you. And it gives you this very unique perspective on the Nixon White House. I mean, there is stuff in it that's, if you're familiar with the stories, you'll be familiar with this. They play some of the Nixon audio tapes, you know, like the secret tapes from his office, of course. So some of it will be familiar, but just the footage itself, the Super 8 footage of the Nixon White House, I think is so unusual and 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 well worth watching all by itself that it more than makes the uh, the film worthwhile. So that's Our Nixon, and that is also available on Netflix. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right, our first is from Pete. Pete recommends The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. 
1979 film made up of three short films that made Winnie the Pooh a household name in the United States, which is now streaming on Netflix. It's sweet, harmless fun, full of joy and honey. My favorite scenes are the first few. Pooh does his stoutness exercise. Pooh climbs and floats up a honey tree. There are a few missteps. Uh, uh, Pete says, I find the Heffalumps and Woozy's dream sequence a little out of place. But if you're looking for a movie that the whole family can enjoy, especially kids who aren't ready for violence, check it out. So that's The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And uh, slightly more adult material from a listener, Andrew Willis, who says, uh, The movie I am recommending is Walter Hill's first film, Hard Times. It's about a quiet drifter who gets involved in bare-knuckle street fighting, and he's looking to make enough money to get by. His new manager is a gambling addict who's out for the big score. Uh, Charlie Charles Bronson plays the boxer, and James Coburn plays his manager. Uh, Bronson's protagonist is nearly mute. He's unquestionably a precursor to characters like the driver from Drive and probably also the driver from The Driver, which is another Walter Hill film. Uh, the film opens in the back alleys of Chicago before it moves and spends the majority of its uh, time in New Orleans. In many ways, the film reminded me of The Cincinnati Kit with Steve McQueen and also reminded me a little of the legendary film Cockfighter starring Warren Oates. The fight scenes are pretty good, and the overall direction is very strong, especially for a first-time director. Uh, Andrew says he watched this movie on Crackle, and it does have a lot of commercial breaks, but it was worth it. Hope you enjoy the film, and I love the show. So that's, uh, that is Hard Times, which is streaming on Crackle, and that was a recommendation from Andrew. All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number five on my my list, and this a week that is the Iceman with Michael Shannon playing real life mob hitman named Richard Kuklinski, who, according to the description, killed more than a hundred people for the mob and his own pleasure between 1964 and 1986. Despite his prolific violence, he was a devoted husband and father of two daughters. Uh, besides Shannon, the cast includes Winona Ryder, Chris Evans, Ray Liotta, David Schwimmer, Robert Davi, and James Franco. James Franco! So it all fits back together in a perfect way. Uh, this one I put on there recently because it's Michael Shannon. I love Michael Shannon. Uh, generally, uh, he's an actor for me that makes even bad movies worth watching. So uh, I was curious about his performance here. I watched a few minutes of it. It didn't look like the most promising movie, but uh, Shannon looked pretty interesting. So I am going to watch the rest of it. So that's the Iceman on my my list on Netflix. Well, that brings us to our new listener's choice section. Um, in the next episode, we'll also be doing the Svuvi Awards for the end of the year, but we will be doing a main review as well. And we've got three picks for you this time. The first is one that we've already mentioned. It's Prince Avalanche, David Gordon Green's, it's not even his latest film at this point. He's very prolific, but uh, uh, Paul Rudd and Emil Hirsch as two guys repainting traffic lines and uh, considering the solitude and their own relationship. And, you know, always interesting to see the work of David Gordon Green, who's, uh, done films like All the Real Girls and films like Pineapple Express. His work has spanned great distances. So that is available on Netflix. All right. Our second pick is going to be available for rental on iTunes starting on December 17th. And it's called Prisoners. It's directed by a man named Denis Villeneuve. Stars Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Viola Davis, Maria Bello, Terrence Howard, Melissa Leo, and Paul Dano doing what he does best, Allison, getting the crap beaten out of him. <laughs> uh, it's a film. Uh, the, the plot description I got here 
says a story. It's about a story that poses the question: How far would you go to protect your child? Hugh Jackman's character is facing every parent's worst nightmare. His six-year-old daughter goes missing together with her young friend. And as the minutes turn to hours, panic sets in. The only lead is a dilapidated RV that had earlier been parked on their street. Heading into the investigation, the detective, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, arrests its driver, played by Paul Dano. But a lack of evidence forces the only suspect's release, knowing his child's life is at stake. Uh, the frantic Jackman decides he has no choice but take matters into his own hands. So uh, kind of a dark, very dark psychological thriller. Neither of us have seen this one yet. Got pretty good reviews this year. And, yeah, I know uh, some people who are very enthusiastic. Yeah, I've seen it popping up on a few top ten lists. And uh, uh, this is one that I wanted to catch up with, haven't had a chance to yet. So I was, uh, I was pushing for this one. So that's Prisoners, and it's going to be available for rental on iTunes. I, I should also point out that uh, Denis Villeneuve directed Ensemble, which was ah. one of the most you know really acclaimed films yeah. uh, recent, uh, not a few years ago. So... Interesting filmmaker. And our last pick is from another interesting filmmaker, if a challenging one. It is Post Tenebris Lux, which is currently streaming on Netflix, the most recent film from Carlos Regadas, the Mexican filmmaker behind Battle in Heaven and Silent Lights, two kind of uh, festival, highly acclaimed festival films that are very divisive particularly Battle in Heaven. This is a semi-autobiographical but also incredibly surreal film. The best description I could find of the plot is Juan and his urban family live in the Mexican countryside where they enjoy and suffer a world apart. And nobody knows if these two worlds are complementary or if they strive to eliminate one another. So make of that what you will. Regatas won the Best Director Award at Cannes in 2012 for this film. And was also booed. So it's that kind of film, the kind of film that wins awards and also gets some hearty boos from the audience. And that is available on Netflix. Okay, so which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, December 23rd at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film, and then join us for our conversation, as well as the Svoovies, on our next episode on Tuesday, December 31st. It'll be a special New Year's edition. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discussed on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick, along with the Svoovies. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's, of course, where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>